Indeed, the cross of Christ is wonderful, is it not? Praise the Lord. Our memory verse for this month is from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 25. And let's go ahead and share in that together. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. 1 Corinthians 1, 25. I'd like to welcome you, those of you who are here in the building today, and those of you who have joined us online, we welcome you to our services this morning, and glad that you are here today worshiping together with us. We are studying the book of 1 Corinthians, and we have been studying this book uh, really uh, through the lens of love builds up. We know indeed that Paul wrote this letter. He wrote it with a purpose, and one of the purposes for which he wrote was to show how love, as God has communicated it, works within the body of Christ to build one another up in the Lord. Last week, we explored how Paul began his letter by drawing us together under the person of Jesus Christ. And as a result of Jesus and his work, as believers in Christ, we share a common gift in the gift of grace. We have a common source of enrichment in the spiritual gifts that have been given to us. We are also anticipating a common expectation as we eagerly await the return of our Lord Jesus. We share in a common condition as guiltless before the Father. And we hold together under the common fellowship, the fellowship of Christ and his church. So in light of all of these realities that we hold in common, why then do we still have division in the church and further how does this division affect the church and the testimony of the church in our unbelieving world as a young man growing up in this area i was in high school and attending a local church uh, part of lancaster county i won't name the church and Unfortunately, we went through what was at the time a rather divisive and difficult church split. Have any of you, please don't raise your hands, but have any of you been in a situation where your church has gone through a very difficult split? And I will tell you, as a young man growing up in that church, I I learned quite a bit. I had not received a calling into full-time ministry yet. I was a new believer, young in my faith. And I remember being part of this family that was so wholesome and so unifying and so many people building into each other's lives and edifying one another and caring for one another and encouraging one another. And all of a sudden, when this issue hit and things became so divisive, it got to the point where over the course of just... A number of months, probably four to six months, the church went from being what felt like one whole united family to being a place where literally on Sunday morning, people were coming and sitting on opposite sides of the aisles based on who they stood with in their position. Many, many people over the course of the next year left the church. The church was divided and still till today is recovering from the effects of this difficult division that took place. There is disunity sometimes, disruption and division. 
in the church. And when these things come and when they happen, it has an effect on both the saltiness and the luminosity of the church. We are to be the salt and the light. And when there's division, our ability to be the salt and the light in the world that God has placed us in is affected. It affects the testimony of the church. One of the questions that Paul is answering throughout his letter is, how do we live as disciples of Jesus and function together as his church in an overwhelmingly unbelieving world? And in today's text, Paul's going to uncover yet another answer to this question. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 today. If you take your Bibles and turn there, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 to 17. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 to 17. Let's pray. Father, we gather together around your word in these moments today, and we are thankful for the power of its truth. Lord, we know that you desire for your body to be unified, to be as one. Yet, Lord, there is so much that threatens to divide and to pull apart, to disrupt and disunify. And so, Lord, through our study of your text today, we pray that you would direct our minds, direct our hearts, direct our eyes towards the one who holds all things together. The very one in whom we share our deepest and most complete unity, the person of Jesus Christ. Father, we give you the glory for how you're going to change us through our time together today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 to 17. This is Paul speaking to the people of God in Corinth. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. That there be no divisions among you. But that you be united in the same mind and same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul begins this part of his letter with an urgent appeal. An appeal is like an ask with high urgency. It's like on Monday, if I say to my daughter, I need you to have your room cleaned by Friday if you'd like to have a little bit of tech time this weekend. 
And as the week continues to go on, I notice that Thursday, the room is still not clean. I may ask, now I need, with a little bit more urgency, I need you to get this done, regardless of whether or not you want tech time or not. High urgency, do it now. Paul grounds this appeal in two important realities. Realities that he has made foundational in the opening words of his letter. First, his appeal is familial. Two times in these first two verses, he refers to the people of God in Corinth as his brothers. First in verse 10, then again in verse 11. And this would have been highly unusual for the Corinthians who, as Romans, Roman citizens trained up in Roman schools of thought, they would not have been given to abstract thinking. Roman thought was very literal. And most Romans would not have thrown a term around like we do. When we see somebody in public, we'll go up, hey, brother, how you doing? Pound, fist pump, whatever we do today. Hug, shake, I don't know. There's all kinds of levels of interaction today. A lot of us are still figuring it out. Romans would have never called somebody a brother who was not their actual brother. Yet the church is different. The church is a family. We have many points of commonality, a reality that Paul has just drawn out in these previous words. Just as siblings in a family have their disagreements and dust-ups, we will soon see, and we know from experience, that children within the family of God share in their disagreements and dust-ups, do we not? Yet the truth remains that children in the same family, children who have the same mother and father, have many more reasons and motivations to make their relationship work for good than not. And for the church... As the family of God, we share the same father and we're drawn together by him under the name of our same Lord, our common savior brother, Jesus Christ. And if the first grounds for Paul's appeal is founded on the understanding that we are a family, the second ground is in that we are a family under the same Lord and savior, Jesus Christ. Look at verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of of our Lord Jesus Christ. The church as family and the church as a people under the lordship of Jesus are the grounds for Paul's forthcoming plea. And, and this appeal that Paul's making, friends, this is a big ask. It has four parts. Take a look at it in the text. First, that we all agree. Second, that there be no divisions within the body. Third, that we would have a unity of mind. And finally, a oneness or sameness in voice or judgment. Why is he saying this? Why is he asking this? The people of God in Corinth, they were struggling within. And it was having an effect on their testimony without. The people of God in America, the church of God in America, is struggling with its unity Within and as we struggle, it has an effect on our testimony without. So what's going on here? Doesn't this seem a bit too ideal? Especially coming from Paul. 
Indeed, there were divisions and separations within his own ministry. Paul and Peter had separated. Apollos and Paul had some differences in their approach. Has Paul presented an impossible standard here? One that he himself was not willing to live by? I don't think so. I think we need to begin by understanding what Paul is not saying here. Paul is not saying that all believers everywhere at all times should all say the same things or think the same thoughts and have agreement and unity on every single matter. Would that be an impossible standard? Yes. We can all say amen. We know it's not true. Paul is saying that because the people of God in Corinth share in the same fellowship with Jesus, that they should be able to come to agreement without division, a unity of thought and singular judgment on the issues that were facing their particular congregation. And friends, it serves as an example to the people of God today. As we work through the muck and the mire of issues that we're facing in our culture and our society, we come to a common ground, a place where we can move forward together. And Paul's central focus in his opening has been on Jesus Christ, who is our first and our final agreement. Jesus is the one who holds all things together, and he is our fullest and most sufficient place to find our agreement within the body of Christ. When there are differences over matters of eating meat sacrificed to idols, lawsuits, head coverings, political positions, music ministry, social issues, as brothers and sisters in Christ under the lordship of Jesus Christ, we should seek a common voice. And there's a pattern that emerges here in verse 10. Take a look again. Agree. Do not divide. Have the same mind. What does that look like? How can a church as massive and as diverse, as broad as the church of Christ, have the same mind on the many different issues that we face in our world today? And Paul actually very clearly answers this question in Philippians chapter 2. I want to read from verse 1, but verses 5 to 8 will be on the screen. Listen to what Paul says. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same Mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Then listen to what he says. Here's what this looks like, being of the same mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you not... Look only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. 
Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As it turns out, friends, this same-mindedness that Paul is calling us to is less about having cognitive uniformity and much more so about a common, spirit-driven, sanctifying transformation of thinking that defines the lives, attitudes, and behaviors of all disciples of Jesus Christ. When the family of God comes together under the lordship of Jesus Christ to determine judgment on a matter, they are to come together with the same mind. Motivated by Jesus' love, encouraged by Jesus' example of humility and his willingness to lay down his own life for his friends, we are to do the same when there's disagreement Within the body. In the final part of this plea, Paul says the church is to be of one judgment. We use the same word today, but we say the word purpose rather than judgment. It is important to ask how any particular matter might relate to the purpose for which we've been called to glorify God by demonstrating the same love that we've been shown by Jesus in the building up of his church and the sharing of Of his good news. Paul is writing here friends. So that the people of God who were in Corinth. Would move beyond their divisions. Would move beyond their dissensions. Would move beyond their factions that were within. And walk together in unity of purpose. Under the lordship of Jesus Christ. That the church. Called by God drawn together by the Spirit, united under Jesus Christ, would share with one voice His person and power, transformed in thought with a fixed and determined purpose, functioning as both salt and light in the places where Jesus has planted us. But instead of this hopeful picture... Paul was given this bleaker version of how the people of God in Corinth were actually functioning. Verse 11, Chloe's people had delivered a message to Paul that there was quarreling. And take a look at the focus of the quarreling. It's very interesting. Instead of focusing on Jesus, where was the focus of the quarreling found? I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. Well, I follow Cephas. Friends, this is still in the church today. I'm not going to name names, but we do this. I follow teacher A. He's the pastor I listen to. I like to read theologian B. He's my theologian. I follow theologian C. He's my favorite author. What was happening here? And what still happens sometimes today is that we attach ourselves to one or two teachers rather than to Jesus Christ. 
Jesus didn't say, abide in teacher A. Abide in theologian B. What did he say? Abide in me. I belong to this such and such camp. And I like this person's position and take on this or that matter. And then we dismiss everyone who doesn't live or think in the camp that we align ourselves with. Allegiances in the Corinthian church were forming. And they still form today around folks in their proverbial camps of thinking rather than our true and our best and most unifying allegiance being found in the person of Jesus Christ and him alone. There's a fourth camp that Paul mentions in the text. It begins in verse 13. I follow Christ. Paul's essentially saying, you claim to follow me or Apollos or Cephas. Knock it off. Give up the partisan squabbling. We belong to Jesus. Paul wasn't saying that Peter's theology was wrong. In fact, even though they disagreed on a certain number of matters, Paul affirmed in the scriptures that he and Peter preached the same gospel. Paul also wasn't saying that Apollos was wrong. In fact, he would later uh, encourage Apollos to go and visit and provide ministry to the people in the Corinthian church. There is a reason, friends, that we do not do this, that we should not do this. Dividing up into camps according to different teachers' personalities or doctrinal understandings. And Paul uncovers that reason by his next three questions at the start of verse 13. Take a look. He emphatically asked this question in verse 13. Is Christ divided? The answer to this question could be either a very, very sad Yes, if it's aimed at the situation going on within the church, perhaps it appears to the outside unbelieving world that indeed the church is serving a very divided Messiah. Well, it certainly looks like it to the outside world. However, I believe the intent of Paul's question was rhetorical and and should be a resounding no. The truth remains, Christ is not divided. And if Christ is not divided, then his body should not be divided. Jesus came ushering in one united kingdom. For he himself taught this very truth. If a kingdom is divided against himself, that kingdom cannot stand. Friends, think of our own homes. This is where I get in trouble a lot. I have to say I'm sorry in my own home. Most of the time... When I give to the children something that mother's been withholding. Unknowingly. I don't always know. We don't always communicate it. And the children are really good about this. Dad hasn't been home. So he has no idea mom said we couldn't do this. So as soon as dad comes home, a lot of times it's on a Sunday of all times. Hey dad. Can we? Oh yeah, sure. Go ahead. Five minutes later, they're getting reprimanded by mom. (laughs) And I'm standing in the kitchen a little embarrassed (laughs) because I said it was okay. Children learn this at a very young age. In fact, it just happened yesterday. And we have to remind them over and over again, mom and dad speak with one voice. A divided kingdom cannot stand. 
And it does make for some silly marital strife too. But just as mom and dad speak with one voice in the home, God has spoken with one voice through his word who is Jesus. And Jesus has spoken with a voice that only divides the sheep from the goats. And in two weeks, we're actually going to see how Paul identifies the cross as the preeminent divider of mankind. There are two categories, friends, two that we need to be most concerned about in our culture and our world today. Those who are in Christ and those who are not yet in Christ. How we relate to and love those in both categories is very important. Christ was crucified once and for all. Paul rhetorically asked this question. Was I, Paul, crucified for you? We might say today, was, was, was our favorite pastor or author crucified for us? No. Or following Paul's next question, were you baptized into the name of pastor so-and-so? I mean, think about how silly this is. Do you walk around saying, well, I was baptized by pastor, blah, blah, blah. And, and it's like your Christian identity is somehow grounded in the man who baptized you? Paul's pointing out this is silliness. No. Those who are in Christ have been baptized into the name of Jesus, into the body of Jesus, and now share in his undivided body. And here again, it is in Jesus Christ where believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, find their ultimate unity. Man has no power in salvation, nor does he hold any authority in baptism, just because I baptize somebody in the name of Jesus Christ, I, I haven't done anything to that person. I have no authority over that person in their baptism. God's doing the work. And that is why Paul now moves to remind the people of God in Corinth that it's not about what he was doing among them, but much more about what Christ was accomplishing in his ministry. Look at verse 14. He moves the emphasis, he's trying to move the emphasis off of himself and on to Christ. I'm thankful. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. Who baptizes us is of no advantage to us. And Paul's glad here that he did not perform an exuberant number of baptisms. This kept folks from taking pride in who was baptizing them, keeping the focus rather on the one into which they had been baptized. Friends, the, the true purpose of our baptism, for those of you who have been baptized, is not for us to associate ourselves with the person who baptizes us, but rather to find ourselves associated with Jesus Christ. And, and this, by the way, some, some pastors and preachers have used this passage to say that uh, Paul did not think baptism to be important. That is not at all what Paul's saying here. Paul, Paul, in other places, argues very strongly for the importance of baptism. Paul's statements in these verses are evidence that baptism was not the premier priority of his gospel ministry. 
Baptism is an incredibly important milestone in the life of every believer, and Paul often encourages it. However, Paul's primary ministry, as we soon shall see, was a ministry of preaching and proclamation. And Paul's going to move on here in verse 16 to make a statement that for some has been a little confusing over the years, but we'll do our best this morning to hash it out together. There's something beautifully vulnerable going here that's related to Paul and his ministry. Paul was not perfect. We know this. Some scholars believe that the entry of this statement in verse 16 is evidence that Paul was rereading his letter or having one of his associates reread it before sending it. And perhaps there may have been some discrepancy regarding the number of people whom he had actually baptized while he was in Corinth. So Paul made a revision or a correction here in verse 16. One scholar looks at verse 16 and says it this way, quote, Paul's come to think of it, or on second thought moment here, is a delightful demonstration of the candid, uncontrived nature of the scripture, which though lofty and wholly inspired, communicates its message in a fully human way. Instead of being put off by what we might see as the messiness of God's word, we are to celebrate it, end quote. I see this verse, friends, as further evidence that points to the veracity of the Scripture. Paul's made a statement in verse 15 that may not have been fully accurate at the time he wrote, and so he revises the statement to give it clarity. And the nature of the clarity is essentially this. I don't know how many people I baptized. I forget. Let's take a look at the verse, 16. I did also, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. It's okay, friends. Church, it's okay to not understand the nature or influence of our own ministries. Jesus knows. Jesus knows. And whether Paul baptized thousands or whether he had only baptized three or four in Corinth, the number was inconsequential. Instead of physical numbers, the focus should be on the spiritual implications of what God was accomplishing through Paul's ministry. As Paul remained obedient to God's calling and laser focused on the purpose for which he was sent, God was demonstrating his power by accomplishing much through this weak and self-described fear-filled man. Keeping this in mind, look at how Paul reminds the people of God in Corinth of the purpose for which God sent him. Look at verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom. Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. See, friends, Paul understood the purpose for which Christ had sent him. He was sent to preach the good news. It's one of the hallmarks of Paul's ministry that he remained laser focused on what God had called him to do in Christ Jesus. And it's a great example for us. Though baptism was a good thing, Paul did not want to get mired down or distracted by even the good things that he was not sent to do. He was sent to preach. And friends, the legacy of his ministry is that preach he did. Whether he was in prison, 
whether he was being beaten, whether he was brought before government leaders or standing before a local congregation, Paul was coming at every person he met with the good news. And consequently, because of that, the good news got Paul in a lot of trouble because he was proclaiming a message that was grossly countercultural in the eyes of the unbelieving world. Jesus Christ alone is Lord. Not Caesar. Not the president. Not any of our political or social leaders. No pastors, theologians, ministry leaders, or anyone else. And while Caesar held great power and influence amongst the people in the provinces of Rome, Caesar was not able to forgive sins and free people from the bondage of death. Only Jesus could do that. And this is great news, friends, because all have sinned. And apart from Jesus, all will die. But Paul had a great, eternal, unifying answer to sin and death. And his answer was Jesus. And so he preached Jesus. He preached Jesus' death and resurrection. He preached the good news to anyone he could. Jews, Gentiles, philosophers, blasphemers, pagans, Romans, Greeks. He could not keep silent about Jesus' great demonstration of love. He called people to respond, to confess, to repent of their sin, to turn to Jesus, the true and better way. And then he moved on. Beautiful. He didn't stay. It wasn't for Jesus, for Paul to stay. He preached, he proclaimed, and he moved on. And another came. And continued on in the discipling ministry by calling those who had converted towards baptism. And towards learning how to grow together in love as the body of Christ. What I love about Paul, and perhaps what we all love about Paul, what we should love about Paul. Is that it's not just that he understood his purpose and was focused on it. But another key to the effectiveness of his ministry, is that he understood his own weakness and led from within it. Now, I find it very interesting today that there's a lot of talk in our culture about leading from your strengths. Find your strength and lead from that. What do you do well? Go there. Go after that. Do that thing. Could it be that the biblical model is exactly the opposite? Look at how Paul describes his own ministry of preaching. It's amazing. He says in verse 17 that he was not preaching the gospel with words of eloquent wisdom. He also says this in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verses 3 to 4a. It's on the screen. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom.
I don't know how Paul would have fared in his uh, public speaking and preaching classes in college. Doesn't seem like in his mind he was going to fare too well. Here's what Paul realized. Here's what Paul understood. That men and women, we have a propensity to prop our leaders up on platforms from where they inevitably will stumble and fall. Because no one is perfect. Paul wanted his ministry to be a clear demonstration of the Spirit's power. That's what he wanted. So that the faith of those who were coming to Christ under his leadership would not rest on anyone else's wisdom. Not his wisdom, not his eloquent words, not Peter's wisdom, not Peter's eloquent words, not Apollos' wisdom or his preaching style or anyone else's, but on the power of God. If faith rests on the words of men, then the cross of Christ is emptied of its power. We are who we are because of Jesus. Truly, this is what the whole section of Paul's letter is about, friends. I've had a lot of mentors in my life. A lot of men and women that have spoken deep and meaningful wisdom to me. That have helped to guide me and direct me in decisions I'm making. In ways that I think and handle situations. But I give not one of them even one ounce of credit for my eternal security. Their words are helpful and beautiful and sustaining and nourishing. But my eternal hope and future is secure solely because of the power of God and the cross of Jesus Christ. Paul is transferring the attention of the people of God in Corinth from himself and from all of the issues that were plaguing them. And there were many we're going to come to find as we study the book. Lots of things going on in Corinth. Lots of things going on in the world today. Paul's saying, get your eyes off those things and get them on Jesus. Put them on Christ. Paul understands that if the people of God don't realize under whom they are truly united, that they will divide and crumble. Church, friends, do we hold this understanding among us today? And if we say that we do, then do our lives reflect that truth? Brothers and sisters, Our first allegiance is to Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Our identity is not in any political party affiliation. Our identity is not in any favorite author, theologian, pastor, apologist, or evangelist. Our identity is not found in our works or good deeds, in our daily purpose, efforts, duties, or delights. Our identity is not in our job. It's not in our community, our gender, our relationships, our marriage, our family status. It isn't in the ministries that we are a part of or the organizations that we volunteer for or with. Our identity is in Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ, we are a new creation. This is our identity. Brothers and sisters, children of love with a nature of love, called into the family of God, brothers and sisters of the King who saved us and named us for a purpose. 
The things on this earth, friends, are going to pass away. Our pastors, our evangelists will die. Our political parties will fade. One empire is going to rise. Another is going to fall. As we dwell together as brothers and sisters in Christ under the lordship of Jesus, let us thrust Jesus to the front and fix our gaze on him. When disagreements arise among us, let us remind ourselves of the mind that we are to have, the mind of Christ, one that demonstrates humility and sacrifice for the good of our family. The sentence, I could be wrong, goes a long way in today's world. For the people of God, boasting in our weakness remains the most effective way to communicate the power of the cross. Team, would you come as we pray? Lord, oftentimes our prayer is that you would help us to grow in our areas of weakness. But perhaps, Father, today our prayer needs to be that you would reveal to us so clearly where our weaknesses are and you would motivate our hearts to stand firmly in those places so that your power may be expressed in the places where we feel most insecure and fearful. You are more powerful than what we may perceive to be our greatest weakness. And perhaps, Lord, what we might learn from this text is if we press that weakness before an unbelieving world, then very well your power may be exposed to them. Through the way that we stand, even when we're scared, even when we're fearful. You give us hope, Lord. Father, we would not want to empty the cross of its power. We would not want to prop ourselves up or place ourselves before the name of your son, Jesus. And Lord, we pray for his help in bringing unity of thought and mind and judgment to the bodies of Christ here in America and across the world, that we would be one, that we would be drawn together under the name of Jesus, which is above every name. And that we would address one another in love and humility with kindness and patience and gentleness. Bearing together with one another through differences. Knowing that when two parties cannot agree that their eyes should be fixed on the person of Jesus, and that it would be your desire for us to move forward together. May our lives, our behaviors, and our attitudes reflect the heart of your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.